Today's seminar is going to address the greening of trade policies, the EU-Mercosur agreement, and I will now invite our moderator, Valeria Pinheiro, a senior research coordinator here at IFPRI to give us opening remarks. Welcome, Valeria. Hi, everyone. Thank you all for um, being here, and thank you, everyone, that is uh, seeing us online. Um, I know that uh, this is lunchtime, and, um, and, and we appreciate your time. I also know that it's a very busy week um, for many different reasons, but the USDA outlook is here, so we would like to take also the advantage of um, all the people that come for that also that are joining us here. I will also make to uh, thank you especially for um, Jose Martins. He's the uh, president of the Exchange uh, Grain from Buenos Aires, so he's uh, here with us. And also I want to thank uh, all my colleagues that are going to be uh, speaking here uh, in front of you. The way we are going to set up this event, I will just give some comments at the very beginning just to put in some context uh, this seminar uh, title and event. Uh, and then we're going to have a round table. What that means is that the speakers will be sitting here in front of uh, the room and I will be asking them specific questions that each of them will um, answer in um, just a couple of minutes. And then we will have the opening the floor for questions from you and from the people online. So we'll do also a couple of rounds for questions. So the way I wanted to start this is just to, again, put some context to this. So we know that we need to achieve the um, development goals or the Agenda 2030, and in order to do that, it's going to be very important to have a sustainable, inclusive, and resilient world. And we also know that trade can play a key role in achieving those uh, three things. Um, so a couple of weeks ago, we also had an event here at IFPRI in which we took the key messages from the GFFA event, the Global Forum uh, Food and Agricultural event that was held in Berlin in mid-January, which the topic for that event this year was trade and food security. So again, this is a key topic a key topic for the SDGs, but also it's a key topic here at IFPRI. It's one of the, um, we really think that it's one of the important um, research topics that we are studying here at IFPRI. So the message, or at least one of the key messages that we convened uh, at that event here at IFPRI a couple of weeks ago, it was that trade can actually contribute for sustain to sustainability through rebalancing natural resources, but also knowledge around the world. And in order to achieve that, there was also the need to what? Harmonization, transparency, and also collaboration in a global uh, world or a global perspective. Um, in order for what? To achieve a more sustainable agricultural production. And that is one of the things we will talk about here today. So to just put some context here. Can we put the presentation? That's a good one. Okay. So in order for us to have just an illustration of the, again, the trade and the importance for trade uh, in achieving a sustainable agricultural production, we're going to use as an illustration the European uh, Union and Mercosur agreement that it has been um, not ratified, but it is in the process of that. Okay. So again, to put this into some context for the ones of you that really don't know about what's the implications of having such an agreement in terms of numbers and the process, 
and the political process that is being going on around this. So the EU Mercosur agreement, the conversations started in 95, 1995. That was a long time ago. So from that point to the actual uh, agreement in, in 2019, there was many different steps. So in 2004, for example, the negotiations were suspended. Uh, and one of the main reasons was exactly the agricultural sector and the differences between the two uh, partners in relating with the agricultural sector points of view. In 2010, the negotiations resumed. And then what it was important is in 2016, they actually start again the conversations in trying to get to an agreement. So in 2019, in June, they agree on some in the agreement, in the basis of the agreement. And we will discuss today what is the process between then and what's going on till now, which is again, it hasn't been ratified by any of the two parties, but it is in the process. And we will talk about this uh, today. And then the other thing I wanted to point out so that you have at least this visual image of the sizes of the two, of the two uh, partners separately and what they means in terms of the global, on the terms of the world. Always size matters more when you're talking about the world in general. So we combine the two, um, the two partners, we can see that we're talking about 773 million people. We're also talking about 16 million square kilometers. And we're also talking about $21 trillion in GDP. That is almost a quarter of the global GDP. And then the other numbers I wanted to show you as well is that if you look at the bilateral trade between the two partners, we can actually see that the numbers are very similar. So we're talking about $50 billion traded. But the size for both of them is very different. So for the Mercosur, the EU, it is a bigger trade partner compared to what it means for the uh, European Union. And then the other big difference is if we compare the agricultural sector with the non-agricultural sector, Argentina exports a lot more of agricultural um, goods to the European Union than the other way around. So those are the two things to keep in mind when we listen to the conversation that we're going to have today. And then the last thing I want to really emphasize is that even though the title says the EU Mercosur agreement, the first part of the title was the greening of the trade policies. So the agreement has many different chapters, but the only one we're really going to concentrate today here is the trade and sustainable development. That, that is the key chapter in trying to uh, analyze or discuss the topic about greening trade uh, policies. So with this, I would like to introduce you to our speakers. Um, we have, um, and can you please come to the front so that I can actually um, introduce you by order. So we have, first of all, here uh, David Laborde. He's a senior um, research fellow here at IFPRI. Then we have uh, Ramiro Costa. He's the deputy executive director of the Buenos Aires Grain Exchange uh, in Buenos Aires. We have Sofia Perini. She's the economist of the INAI Foundation. That's the Institute for International Agricultural Negotiations. And last but not least, we have Eugenio Diaz Bonilla. He's the head of the Latin American program here at IFPRI. Thank you. So as I said a couple of minutes ago, the way we're going to organize this is I'm going to ask a question to each of our speakers. The questions, you're actually going to see them uh, on the back. And we tried to group them 
by kind of topic. So we will have a couple of questions uh, per slide, but it's a, a way for you to keep track of the questions we're asking. So first of all, I would like to start this conversation asking David, uh, why trade policies matter for environmental outcomes? Thank you. Thank you, Valeria. Thank you, for everyone, for, for being here. Um, I, I will start just by also explaining why trade matters when we think about environmental issues, because trade policy is just a way to, to steer the trade flows in a specific direction that policymaker would like it to, to, to see taking. So trade is just connecting supply and demand. So if one of your behavior when you are a producer or a consumer creates negative externality on your environment, trade is just going to make this worse. It's not going to be the source of the problem. So if you are sitting in a plane and someone is eating a raw onion next to you, you are going to suffer negative externalities. The fact that someone has sold him the onion is not the problem. It's how this onion is consumed. And same thing for uh, producing. And so if you have a problem of deforestation, if you have a problem of water management, most of these problems come from producer practices, or in some cases, consumer practices. But trade is not guilty here. It's just connecting people. So in this context, of course, we can say, if we know that we have problems, if we have not the right institution, the right governance to tackle this problem, trade is just accelerating things or make the problem worse. So it is in this context that policymakers want to limit trade. Historic, historically, for instance, the extermination of the buffalo in the US has been driven by the high demand of leather by the uh, EU, at the time the European countries, and the fact that they have new technical solution to manage this type of leather. So of course we have seen extermination of, of buffalo. Of course trade has played a role because without the European markets at the time, the US will not have tried to exterminate the buffalo for values. But if the US have decided to protect their buffaloes, trade will not be an issue. So one of the key questions when we think about trade policy is, in this context, do we want to use trade policy as a second best instrument to uh, limit some problems? But the first solution normally is to make sure that people are using the good technology, have the good incentive to have the good practices within their own borders, and trade, can, and trade policy can be seen as a, this type of secondary instrument. One of the issues that uh, arise very often is, oh, but transporting goods create emission. Yes, carrying goods all over the, the place create emissions, but it's true also within borders, it's not just cross borders. So in this case, do you want also to limit trade between the East Coast and the West Coast in the US? Because that's the same thing if you are from Florida to Mexi Mexico, you will uh, have limited distance. But something we should not worry, we should not forget, sorry, when we think about agriculture, and in particular in the context of Europe and Mercosur countries, they are in two different hemispheres. So when you carry some agricultural goods, so you are, for example, looking for soybean. The fact that you can have a supply all over the year by playing with hemisphere actually is a very good way to manage your value chain. Instead of storing rapeseed during six months in Europe, that will have an environmental cost in terms of energy of storing, potential losses and things like this, actually the emission you make cause by transporting things will be lower than trying to manage it purely domestically. So we should always think in terms of, you know, what is the opportunity cost? If I do not trade, what will be my environmental cost to do this at home? Um, and so, yes, trade policy will have an impact because they can change flows. Uh, during the discussion, we will see how specific feature of a trade agreement that is about a bilateral relation between two blocks 
can change trade flows and potentially have impact. But I just want to say that trade policy and trade is just, just um, what we call as economists a second order tool in managing some of these environmental issues. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. Um, it's very important to connect trade and trade policies in order to do uh, to do this. And now, Eugenio, I would like to ask you, um, what are the political changes that the world is facing that contributed to this process? And what I mean by this process is the actual um, agreement on the table right now compared to what happened in the uh, beginning of the 2000s. And do you think that there were other factors as well? Not only political changes, but other factors in the world that also contributed to this. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Valeria. Thanks to all of you and the people in the audience outside IFPRI. Uh, yeah, first we need yeah 20 years in the making. Why 2019, June 2019? Uh, for the first point to realize is that the, it's not only a trade agreement. It's a broader agreement that includes political uh, aspects, uh, cooperation, etc. So the first point I think it was all the governments involved thought that democracy was being under siege, or uh, you know, and that was a way of making sure that the democratic values and good governance, etc., uh, was uh, supported. So that's the first point. <clears throat> Second, also the sense that the rules-based trade, international trade system, was also under under attack, and that was a way of uh, strengthening, again, the, the rules in trade. Um, then you can go and think that, yes, there were a specific trade interests. You know, the European Union wanted to get more industrial access in the Mercosur. The Mercosur countries wanted to have more agricultural access into European Union. The European Union also has a specific uh, objectives related to uh, rules and regulations, food safety, sanitary and phytosanitary aspects, uh, geographical indications, and so on and so forth. So from the point of view of the European Union, they got, I think, most of what they wanted. From the point of view of Mercosur, it's a different argument, and it, you, you can separate, you know, Uruguay and Paraguay, they do not have defensive trade interest because the industrial sector is not that big. But for Brazil and Argentina, the industrial sector is bigger and therefore they do have some defensive interests. And the argument at that time of the government was that the competition from, from the industry in Europe, which is very advanced, would uh, help to modernize the industrial sector in Mercosur. So, but for that to happen, of course, you need also to do a lot of other things to, to support in terms of macroeconomic sectoral policies to make sure that the industrial sector in, um, in the Mercosur countries really can adapt to that competition. There is also a parallel argument that I don't think is that valid. Some people were saying, you know, the European Union was also interested in putting some pressure to their own agricultural sector via Mercosur uh, imports and in that way also help to the competitiveness of the agricultural sector in, in European Union. But I don't think it's not that important because the in fact market access is not that big in my view within the the this uh, the, the agreement so far so uh, so the question now it was this combination of political general trade issues specific trade interests uh, of course the mercosur countries need to think about you know what are the implications of some of the rules and i, I understand that we'll have some additional conversation later uh, the precautionary 
principle, which is not in the SPS, but is in the trade and, and development chapter, uh, the fact that um, the export taxes are eliminated, which is, or reduced significantly, which is basically the only instrument that you can have to compensate for tariff escalation on the import side. So then you have tariff uh, or export tax escalation on the export side. So there are several things that I think still need to be calibrated better. But in any case, at that time, uh, there was an alignment of interest around these political general trade issues and specific trade aspects that led to the agreement. Thank you, Henio, um, for bringing up those um, those comments. I think that yes, it is important that at this uh, time the language of the agreement is being discussed. So, and as well to really bring up uh, all key elements that may be being dispute, or at least not dispute, but that they can be uh, talked about right now, because also the agreement will be done in many years. So we have a, a like a ten-year um, process until it is in full, so that we take care of all the sectors that may be the losers compared to the winners and come up with all the um, economic policies that will help in getting to that competitiveness that you were mentioning. Um, Sophia, I would like to ask you, um, what are the main aspects of the EU-Mercosur agreement? Okay, thank you, Valeria. Uh, I would like to thank for the invitation to this event. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, regarding the EU-Mercosur agreement, uh, it will provide a new trade framework between both blocks in which the EU is going to liberalize 92% of its imports from Mercosur, while Mercosur is liberalizing 91% of its imports from the EU. So, admitting the different levels of uh, development of each party, they are going to have, the EU is going to have 10 years for uh, liberalizing his products and the e Mercosur, it's taking up to 15 years to for its most sensitive products, uh, specifically for uh, agricultural products, this will, the EU will liberalize eight, only 84% of its import. The rest, it's going to be partially liberalized in, in the form of tariff rate quotas or fixed preferences. And there are like around 100 products that are going to be excluded from the tariff reductions. Specifically, tariff rate quotas that are uh, the main, the products that are mainly exported by Mercosur members uh, include specific quotas and reciprocal quotas uh, for both sides. Uh, the ones that are individual includes, in the case of the EU, includes bovine meat, pork meat, some poultry meat, sugar, corn and sorghum, sugar, I'm not going to list everyone, but uh, there are among others. And then in the reciprocal quotas, we have some dairy products and also garlic. Uh, you were mentioning the ratification process we are now experiencing since the conclusion of the negotiations on June of past year. We started the process of legal review and now we are on that process of legal review and then uh, it's going to be translated sorry, into the official languages of each uh, member states. And after that, it has to be signed and then ratified by uh, all parties. The difference is that the, the European Union could, uh, the, for the, the European Union, the agreement can enter into force the 
the trade pillar only with the ratification of the Par European Parliament and European Council and for the final ratification, yes, it needs the approval of all member states. In the case of Mercosur, this is quite different. The ratification has to be done by all member states and it doesn't need the approval of all members to enter into force. You have only, with only one uh, member that has it approved, it could enter into force bilaterally with the European Union. So this is particularly a kind of a concern for Mercosur because there is no clause inside the agreement that says uh, what's going to happen if one of the member states uh, enter, uh, enter into force before the others because I think it's essential to have a transitional clause or something like that to, in order to know how to deal with this situation if that happens. Thank you very much, Sophia. And um, having heard the specifics of the agreement and what it means um, for, for our, more than anything for Argentina, Ramiro, I would like to ask you if you can comment on what are the global challenges affecting the private sector in Argentina and what opportunities do you see for the agricultural sector, again, from the Mercosur perspective. Thank you. Thank you, Valeria, and thank you so much for inviting us to, to speak here today at this seminar. For us, it's for me, and Buenos Aires Land Exchange, it's a real honor. Going to your question, uh, the global challenges affecting the private sector in Argentina, and we can say that as far as the global challenges, it's also affecting the agricultural sector in the rest of the world. Uh, we can divide them in three, maybe most of you know it very well. The first one is related with the increased population, reaching to something like 9 trillion persons to 2050, with more incomes, which led us to the second global challenge, that is the global food demand to 2050. We know that at least we have to produce at least 60, 70% more to 2050 uh, in comparison to what we are producing today. And we have to produce more for more people with more incomes, but we have to consider the impact on, on the environmental. So the third global challenge are related with the concerns, concerns on climate change. So, we, th we think that if we want to, to reach that goal, we have to change the way we are producing. The, pro the food production system must change to, to reach this goal and to produce more food uh, with less impact on, on environment. So I think that we can face both, pr uh, both problems, food security and, and climate change, adopting new technologies, adopting new practices in the agricultural sector. And I think that here the, the key word could be knowledge. With knowledge, with better technologies, with better seeds, better input, better practices, we can do that. So I think that we have to move or migrate from the something like the fossil oil economy to what we call the biomass economy, or uh, in Argentina we call it to the value economy. So in this, under this idea, the agricultural sector, it's going to be like a key part of the process of the solution. We don't see the agricultural sector as part of the problem, but as we, we see it as part of the solution. We think that, you know, in Argentina and in Mercosur, the agricultural sector is really important. It's an area of strength. It's in, in, in any indicators that you see uh, on macroeconomic levels. It's very important in, in terms of the share of GDP, in terms of export. More than 60% of our export came from the agriculture. It's important in terms of employment or even in, in, in fiscal revenues. So for us, it's a, it's a real challenge, but we see it as an opportunity. 
our farmers are willing to incorporate new technologies. They, they know how to adopt, they like to adopt new technologies. Uh, Argentina and the Mercosur as well is a very efficient biomass producer. We have capacities, technical capacities, and we have institutions, public and private institutions like the Buenos Aires Grand Exchange, that we are promoting this idea. So considering these three global challenges and considering the agricultural sector, I think that th this is not part of the problem, we are part of the solution. Thank you. Thank you, Ramiro. I really like um, the message you said about the agricultural that can be the solution and not the problem. We like to think about that at IFPRI in terms of farmers. I've heard um, David mention that as well in many other uh, occasions. And with that, um, Eugenio, I would like to ask you exactly the same questions, but with the perspective of uh, the Mercosur countries. So what are the current global challenges affecting the Mercosur countries, and why is it important for the Mercosur to have a sustainable development strategy? Thank you. Um, I, at three different levels. One, uh, uh, the countries in Mercosur, they have a specific individual challenge, which is restart growth. During the last decade, the countries in Mercosur, particularly Brazil, sorry, separate. Brazil and Argentina, they didn't grow at all in the last decade, and they had negative growth rates in income per capita during the last five, five years, uh, four or five years. So th they need to restart growth. This is different from, Brazil, from Paraguay and Uruguay, they kept on growing. To do that, they, you need to um, coordinate better the, your macroeconomic policies, your developmental policies, the, the trade strategies. Brazil and Argentina need to get to an agreement exactly what to do. And also there are some political differences, as you all know, related to Venezuela and other aspects in Latin America. So that's an, an internal challenge in Mercosur, how you start growth and get to an agreement within Mercosur. The second uh, level is more related to the agricultural sector per se. Yeah, it's true. You have more people at the world level, greater incomes. Some of the projections we showed here at IFPRI that are seem to be too uh, optimistic. The, the growth rates of the world is not going to be what some of these projections are suggesting. But also, I think Mercosur will need to understand that the food markets, agricultural markets in the next 10 years will be completely different from now. You have strong changes in consumer preferences, health aspects, you know, the rise, the increase in obesity and non-communicable diseases, of course, the environmental aspect, but also the energy transition. Uh, our colleagues in EPTD, the Environmental Pro uh, and Production Technology Division, they are working on the energy aspects. The energy transition is super accelerated at the world level, and that will have a great impact on agricultural production, particularly in Latin America, that part is related to bio biofuels, etc. So you have, this is the second aspect that we need to consider in these scenarios they are going to be very, very different. And the third point is not only a challenge for Mercosur, it's a challenge for the world, a global challenge. Uh, we, I kept on arguing that, you know, Latin America is the key, it cannot feed the world. We, uh, Latin America is about 11, 12% of all global production, China is 20-something, um, India is about nine, uh, European Union about 11 also, the US and Canada about 11. So, you know, you cannot feed the world, and Mercosur would be seven or eight within that 11 or 12 percent. But yes, Latin America is the, f the largest net food exporter, net agricultural exporter at the world level. It's, it's larger than the US, Canada, Australia, and New Zealand together. And, and the European Union is mostly balanced, so, you know, it, this is the greatest the, the anchor of food 
uh, of food security in the sense that uh, gives the quantity and uh, helps to stabilize prices and quantities. Uh, Latin America, and particularly Mercosur. That's first point. Second, Latin America, and particularly Mercosur, and all the countries in, in the Amazon, which is not only Brazil. You know, you have Colombia, Peru, Bolivia, Venezuela, Ecuador. They are all Amazon countries. Uh, so Latin America is the main producer of global environmental public goods. Has almost 40% of all the carbon sinks in the forest are in Latin America. About 46% of the total water, available water, is in Latin America. Biodiversity, the 10 largest countries in biodiversity, six are in Latin America, and one or two are in Latin, are Brazil and Colombia. So if, if we do not, and these two public goods, if you want, food security and environmental public goods, we need to keep them, uh, they, they are fundamental for the world, not only for Mercosur, and that means something that Ramiro mentioned, we need a huge investment in science and technology. So in order to, to, to address that, um, I think, you know, of course, the National Agricultural Research Institute, but also the CGIR, Fontagro, all the institutions will need to step up a lot the work. It's only 1% of the GDP in R&D is not going to be enough. The new president of the IDB, the IDB is going to have a new president, probably one of the collective action programs that should call is this related to science and technology, how you can make sure that the food security and the environmental aspects are combined within Mercosur. That's going to have, as I said, global repercussions. The same for the, the EU if they want to help. It's more than trade. It's not only trade. It's the whole thing of science and technology. And the new fund for uh, Bill Gates on agriculture or the new funds for, from Jeff Bezos on, on climate change. All these instruments should be focus on making sure that, that Latin America can, and Mercosur, which is about 80% of what I was say, talking about, food security and then global environmental public goods can be combined or uh, make harmonized between them. Thank you, Genio. Thank you for pointing out the uh, challenges that uh, the Mercosur countries and the world are going to be facing in terms of changes in preferences with respect to nutrition, health, and safety, and the energy transition, and as well as the key role that investment is going to play in, uh, in overcoming this. And with this, I would like to actually ask uh, Sofia, what is the priority given to sustainability? And what are the key elements of trade and sustainable development chapter in the agreement? Thank you. Actually, the, the priority given to sustainability is that it has uh, a chapter on trade and sustainable. Uh, so I think this chapter is a novelty. In comparison with the original negotiation agenda, it was introduced after the relaunch of negotiations in 2016. Uh, as a request of the European Union to meet their own consumers' demand. Um, actually, the, the chapter includes 18 articles, but I'm going to focus on what I consider more relevant. Uh, first, in terms of the objectives of the chapter, both parties reaffirm the commitment to promote trade in a way that contributes to sustainable development and sustainable development goals, and also to respect international agreements and international standards. That's a focus of the uh, chapter. Uh, then, in terms of what I think it's one of the key elements of this chapter, it's that it defines right to regulate. 
This means that each country can define its own priorities and policies, and they can define the levels of environmental and labor protection that they consider appropriate. Uh, this is crucial for uh, considering the differences in the levels of development of each parties. Uh, but this, this doesn't mean that they can weaken the levels of protection in order to encourage trade or they cannot use these measures as um, a disguise restriction to trade or uh, an arbitrary discrimination. Another important aspect that it's included is that it has some specific uh, topics, like some articles are specific related to climate change, biodiversity, then it's included the sustainable management of forestry and fisheries also, and there is uh, one specific for responsible management of supply chains. In all these uh, topics, it's mentioned that they had to the, they committed to uh, respecting the international the com commitments uh, assumed in international agreements, and also they have to have a space to cooperation bilaterally, regionally, or also in international in multilateral fora. Uh, and of course, they recognize their role. With this, something that we have mentioned, all of us have mentioned, it's that the importance, uh, the important role in the contribution of addressing all those issues. Um, then there is a specific reference, as Eugenia mentioned, a specific reference to precautionary principle. And there is, they establish a, a specific uh, subcommittee to address all the issues related to the facilitation and monitoring of the implementation of the chapter. And finally, but not least important, the, there is defined a specific uh, mechanism for trade uh, dispute resolution um, that it's different from the one that, uh, the, from the chapter of dispute settlement of the whole agreement. And well, I think that's the, the most important elements of the chapter. Thank you, Sofia. And, um, now, David, I would like to um, ask you, or more if you can comment, and there are many studies that had uh, reported possible increase in greenhouse gas emissions if the EU-Mercosur agreement is ratified. Um, there are many of them out there. But I would like you to, to see if you can comment on what factors will play a role in mitigating this effect. Yes, uh, I, I will start by saying that uh, actually the EU-Mercosur agreement is the first trade agreement I have work on, so it was in 2002-2003, with Antoine Bouet that is hiding at the back of the room. And clearly at the time there was not so many questions about environmental issues. You no, know, it was about economic growth, it was about jobs, it's about value added. And the, the point made by Sofia I think is very interesting. You know, the, the social demand has evolved. Now we want that this trade agreement also uh, include uh, uh, positive outcome in terms of uh, social and environmental solution for the society. So we have seen it uh, growing. And of course now we start to assess this assessment also about what they mean in terms of environmental outcomes. And here we are not talking about trade policy in general, we're speaking about the regional agreements. So policy makers decide to give specific access to specific partners. So it's not about importing more meat in Europe, it's going to be importing more meat from South America. So there are two questions important 
to keep in mind, I talk about meat because a lot of the emission story we are going to hear about the agreement is about meat consumption. Uh, I will refer after to a second product that can have actually a good mitigating impact will be the ethanol sectors. But for meat, one of the question is, do we are going to see following this agreement, European consumer eating more meat? I think yesterday we had a policy seminar showing that actually there's already a declining trend in red meat consumption in Europe and in many advanced economies. The total import of meat today in Europe is 5% of the market. And Mercosur countries are the first providers of meat already today on the European markets. So actually the agreement is not about removing all trade barriers to meat, is to give an enhanced access for what we call tariff rate quota to Mercosur countries. And in the case of beef, the size of the quota is even lower than what they the Mercosur countries export today. So it's really about more giving better access for better price for Mercosur exporters. But it will not change the amount of meat that will be consumed in Europe. And I think it's a mistake that is made in some of the assessment that, that we see. Now the question is more is if we replace tomorrow a French cow by a, a Uruguayan cow or um, some meat coming from Australia by some meat coming from Argentina, what is the carbon intensity of this different product? And here is where the story starts to be a bit complicated. Because first, meat is not an homogeneous goods. You have high quality meat and low quality meat. And when we are in the high quality meat sectors, it's not clear that European high quality meat is less carbon intensive than Mercosur uh, cattle, for instance. And Argentina and Uruguay are in this high quality meat. So actually, importing high quality meat from this country can reduce emission when we think about the total balance. When, when today for low quality meat, so meat coming from Brazil to Europe, actually Europe is more efficient in terms of emission to produce this low quality meat than Brazil. So really, we have to be very careful about what type of product we are talking about, how it is or in how it is made. And it's where I think, I will keep the eternal discussion maybe for, for later, for the sake of time. I will just finish on my meat story. Um, because it's, you know, what type of technology are going to be used in Mercosur to address this, um, no, I will say not new demand for Europe, but a demand in better condition. Is having better price on the European market because you don't pay the tariff, give incentive or not even incentive, but capacity for uh, South American producers, Mercosur producers, to adopt new technology or not. And also, are the other aspects of the agreement about regulation, labeling, all of this, is providing a, a safer environment for investors to uh, start to make this knowledge investment that we are talking about, because we are not going to reduce emission by doing nothing. And we want an, 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 a trade agreement that will create growth. So if we do growth with the current technology, we create more emission. Also, that's a news, as, as we know. Uh, economic growth create more emission, except if we change the nature of the growth, except if we change the technology. So the question is better price for some uh, farmers in Mercosur and a safer recognition in terms of norms and practices can or not trigger this. I think that's one of the pending questions. But really, and that will be my conclusion, just thinking that, oh, we are going to import more meat, so we consume more meat, so it won't my emission. That's not the story. Here we are relocating market share between suppliers, and we change market condition. And this is why careful assessment needs to be done, not oversimplification.
Thank you, David. Thank you very much for emphasizing the differences in quality of the good and, and the effect and the impact that they can bring in terms of environmental outcomes. And more than anything, to, to bring to the uh, table the, again, something that we've been talking about, which is investment. Investment in all these new ways of producing, as Ramiro was mentioning uh, before. And that connects very well with the next uh, question that I would like to ask Ramiro in terms of what are the actions the private sector of Argentina is engaging referring sustainability. Thank you. Well, thanks, Valeria. Uh, I think your questions allows me to, to comment on three new initiatives that we have in Argentina regarding sustainability. Uh, I can start with the Global Agricultural Practices Network. This network was created in 2014 with uh, Buenos Aires Grand Exchange and many other institutions from public to private sector, we are promoting the good agricultural practices at farm level. Today, we have more than 90 institutions working together in this, uh, with this goal in mind. We, we have uh, several activities to, to, to achieve our, our goals, our decisions, and I would like to mention just a few because of the time. Uh, just to, to start with some examples, for, for instance, we train farmers in, in how to correctly use inputs, new inputs and machinery. For doing so, we have a training department with a lot of different courses at different levels. We have courses at regional levels, local level, and even national levels. We also have technical documents. We have four technical documents at the moment, one for crops, one for vegetables and fruits, another one for dairy, and the, the last one for beef production. This is important to highlight here that each document to be released must have the approval of each of, 90 of these 90 institutions. So once we release them, the market knows that the enforcement to them is so important because not only the government, but also the main private institutions in Argentina agree with what that document says. So they, they, they are strong enough to try to uh, like, uh, pave the road on, on these, on these uh, gaps. Then we also work on communications. Everybody knows that public concerns on, on, on food, on food production systems are very important. So communication is another important area of, of this round table. Going to the second initiative, and this one is related with deforestation. The big soybean traders in Argentina are working together to show their interest in avoid deforestation in the Gran Chaco region. The Gran Chaco is the second largest forest mass in Latin America after Amazonas. And they created these, these traders, these big traders, create a, an online platform. It's called Agroideal. Agroideal means something like you can translate as ideal agricultural, where they know exactly how, uh, where farmers are planting soybeans. So they know if they are buying soybeans from, let's say, prohibited area according to our forest law. And, and they trying to achieve a goal of reaching to zero deforestation in that, in that region. And the third and, and the latest initiative is the brand new one. It's called the Argentine Carbon Neutral Program. Everybody knows here about the private and public standards. Uh, they have impact on market access, on the production costs, or even in consumers' perception about the food. So in, uh, we know that in maybe 10, 15 years ago, we saw that kind of, uh, of environmental standards like a threat. 
But nowadays we change our perspective and we see we see them as an opportunity. And that's why we are promoting this new program in Argentina of carbon neutrality. We are just starting with this. We launched it uh, past December. Uh, now we have two leading cases, one for the soybean value chain and the other one for the beef production. So I, I don't have so many results to show at this, at this new program, but hopefully in a few months I can I could send something uh, about our progress. Thank you. Thank you, Ramiro, for giving us some examples of what uh, Argentina is doing in the private sector. And um, I would like to switch a little bit and go to uh, Sofia with the question, what are the main concerns about the TSD chapter for both sides, so for both of the uh, partners? And how is introduction of this chapter relevant for the future of the Mercosur agriculture? Thanks. Oh, actually, it's a, a really interesting question. Uh, the, from what INA Foundation could gather, there are uh, many concerns, uh, ones that are own concerns and then some shared concerns. Uh, in the case of Mercosur, the main concerns are related to the real access to uh, the real possibilities of access to, into a European market due to the competitive differentials thank you, thanks to uh, subsidies granted by the European Union and also the high standards. Uh, and then there is fear about the competition of industrial European products into its mar in domestic markets and also the intra-regional markets. And uh, I think one of the main concerns, uh, it's specifically referred in the TSD chapter and it's related to the precautionary principle that in the past was used by the European Union uh, to prevent the entrance of GMO products to its market. And so the precautionary principle allows to apply measures with, to cope with the risk or potential risk of environmental degradation or occupational health, health or safety. And without having enough or sufficient information uh, or when it's inconclusive, and this could lead to restrictions to trade, and that's uh, one of our main concerns. Uh, from the point of view of the EU, there are other main concerns related to the, effect, the effective implementation of the, of the Paris Agreement, uh, including fighting deforestation. Also, they are worried about the uh, compliance with its health and environmental standards and also they are uh, kind of worried about what could happen with the introduction of agricultural products from Mercosur uh, and this means that they oh, they don't know which impact can they can these uh, new products produce in the more sensitive industries or farmers uh, from the point of view of the share concerns, uh, I think that uh, it's related to whether the dispute settlement, settlement mechanism is strong enough to uh, encourage in some way the sustainability commitments. Uh, regarding the other question, uh, the importance of the introduction of this chapter, as we mentioned before, this is the first time this uh, chapter, like something related to sustainable development, is included in a 
trade agreement of Mercosur, so it's a huge first step to start discussing these uh, issues inside Mercosur. Uh, this could lead, uh, this could help uh, to uh, serve as a platform for the implementation of international agreements and also lay the foundation for future trade agreements. And what I consider it's most important is that it could help harmonize regulation inside Mercosur. So and one of the most important uh, things of this chapter is that it could allow us to as a, it could serve as a me transparency mechanism, as you mentioned before, it could help to exchange information about initiatives that are being conducted by Mercosur members. So uh, in some way, I think we have been doing a lot of work on this field, as Ramiro pointed out, but it wasn't well transmitted to consumers, specifically uh, European consumers, and this would be a good way to show how we produce uh, on balance. I think that this chapter, well, one of the main challenges that both parties had is to avoid the temptation to use this chapter as green protectionism, and in the other, on the other hand, to uh, it could allow us to show the world how we produce in a sustainable manner. Thank you. Thank you, Sophia. Thank you for. Uh, bringing into the uh, table of the discussion um, the things to look for that it is a precautionary principle when they said that it has to be science-based evidence even in the lack of that uh, that they could implement something that is something definitely to look for and then the uh, dispute settlement process and how the enforcement of that will come into the into the agreement afterwards and then the beauty of this chapter, which it could help in the transparency and harmonization that we've been t talking about, not only between the two partners, but inside uh, the Mercosur, Brazil and Argentina, to agree on many different things. And uh, with this, I would like to s definitely switch a little bit and ask Eugenio for the last question. And um, looking more into the consumption side. So what are the possible effects that you see on the consumption side and the weight forward? Uh, I'll focus more on, on the way forward. May David mentioned the problem with the uh, environmental lobby and the farm lobby in the US, in the EU, and it's true all the points that, that David mentioned, in, and also from the point of view of Mercosur, the beef quota is less than 1% of the production in, in, Mer in Mercosur. So it, the, the quotas are not gonna change a lot the production. In, in Mercosur or the consumption in the European Union. So, but then you have this environmental and agricultural lobby and you had these votes in the Austrian parliament, in the uh, Irish parliament. So uh, we will see how that plays out. From the point of view of Mercosur, the political economy is also something that Sofia referred to. Uh, Brazil, uh, Brazil seems very much interested in this discussion of opening the economy, perhaps it's discussing a potential trade agreement with the, the United States, and so on. So Brazil is going to move forward, and, and, and the same with Uruguay and Paraguay. So the question mark is what happens in the case um, of Argentina, uh, and whether the market access and the uh, idea of modernization of the, of the industrial sector through competition, will the balance of interest will be such that will keep the, the, the whole Mercosur countries together. 
So we will see that. In any case, I would think that some of aspects need to be re re uh, rebalanced a little bit. One is, of course, the, the SPS, the sanitary and phytosanitary. Even the, the section of SPS in the European, uh, the European Union Mercosur Agreement is WTO minus. It's not even the, the SPS 5.7, which it said, you know, you can impose some without science, but it has to be temporary. That's not being said in the European Union uh, Mercosur Agreement. The other thing is the, the issue of elimination of export taxes. Uh, that's going to eliminate that important aspect for in the case of Argentina for fiscal management in, and for uh, trying to uh, work against uh, tariff escalation in other countries. Other issue is the opening of uh, certain products like wine, um, cheese, honey, etc., that are subsidized in the in the European Union, and then it will be have access within Mercosur. So is Mercosur able to resort to some countervailing measures and so on and so forth? So there are several issues still to be um, balanced, if you want. But and and you have this political economy in Europe and Latin America. My sense is yes, it's going to go forward. But there was going to be some discussion, as, as was mentioned. It has to be still ratified. But uh, certainly, the political economy will be interesting to look at. Thank you. Thank you very much, all of you. And now I would like to ask if you have uh, any questions. Yes. Uh, Rob Boss. Thank you, Rob. <coughs> Thanks. Uh, very. Um Interesting discussion, and I can see a lot of the potential of this agreement. But from the, what you mentioned, also what I've read about about it, what are the true benefits we'll get, particularly from the Mercosur side, if you if you look at the details, particularly for for agriculture. So, beef quota not going to move much. Food safety standards, particularly GMOs and. Uh, products not going to enter the European market, so you have to comply with those standards. So, and those are parts of big export products from uh, from Mercosur. So, what really would be the economic gains? That would be first question. So, why would there be that this support? Then the second one, so on the sustainability paragraph, um, I would sense that could also be the the biggest hurdle in getting this ratified, right? So already, I think Austria already rejected the agreement, so it could be enough to kill the whole agreement, because um, all European countries have to agree to it over the Amazon fires, right? So whatever <coughs> guarantees the agreement may give on sustainable uh, forest management and protecting the, the forest, and, and particularly the Amazon, it's clearly not in the mindset of Europeans that that's going to be complied with. So what would make you think that this agreement could lock in better policies in, particularly in, I guess in Brazil, to make this uh, a, uh, an agreement that uh, other, that European, particularly European countries would be agree, agreeing on to, to ratify? Because the odd seems it's not gonna happen. Rob, I think that this is a big question, so I will just want to take uh, this one for now and let everybody else think about whatever they want to ask uh, afterwards. Um, do you want to start, uh, David? Or 
I can do a first cut on the, the economic interest. I think that, yes, on, on the, there is a number of, of uh, better access conditions for European, for, for European exporters in Mercosur and for Mercosur exporters to Europe. In the case of beef, it will not be translated in terms of increase in volume, but they are expected to get a better price through this preferential access. So uh, that already something uh, something good. They are going to get for the first time a good access to the, the pork, even if the pork sectors, European uh, producer can be quite competitive, but poultry. Currently, the only export that uh, Mercosur are doing are within existing quota. They are not able to go beyond the quota when they are able to do it for beef. They are not doing for poultry. So Brazilian exporters have clear interest in that. The other big gain is for the ethanol uh, sectors, particular for Brazil, but Argentina may also have, have some interest. And because in particular sugar cane ethanol is very efficient in terms of emission compared to other cases of ethanol, here you have a win-win deal, meaning that uh, replacing some um, uh, wheat ethanol that is done in Europe today by some sugar cane ethanol is a good thing. And avoiding to import US uh, corn-based ethanol is also a good thing for Europe. So here you have win-win-win type of of outcomes. After, uh, as it has been discussed, there is a number of other products of interest, like garlic, like thing that can really give, give some niche, uh, but they will be smaller. But overall, yes, I think that there is gain in terms of value added, not always in volume, but clearly in value added for um, the, the, the Mercosur exporter and my colleague can potentially uh, continue on that. And I think this is why we still have people in Mercosur that are interested in the agreement, because if the, the farmers of Mercosur get nothing, I don't think that we will discuss an agreement, except for some of the high-level uh, commitment that, that Renio has raised uh, before. Um, and of course, the, the Europeans also are, are very interested. In terms of the, the, what means the current vote of the Austria, I think we, we had already kind of similar issues in the past with, with other agreement, not being as crystallized as, as this one. Yes, the the, the news on the Amazon fire and forest and how high-level policymakers have reacted clearly make things worse, uh, but it was a long process. Maybe right now there is some, some grains uh, in, the, in the system in Europe, but there is also a lot of discussion within Mercosur countries. Okay? Not all countries are going to ratify it, so we may see a few, few months, few years to, to fix it. But as Sophia said, the actual implementation um, process in Europe and in Mercosur is quite different. Uh, and in Europe, it will be done as a block. And actually, Europe can start to, to implement things even without all the ratification, when it's not the case in Mercosur. I stop here because my colleagues can explain much more in details. Uh, actually, I was thinking uh, about the benefits of this agreement for both sides. Uh, in terms of Mercosur, I think well, for both, I think the the main the main objective of the the announcement of the agreement was a clear signal towards the rules-based trade in a context of increasing protectionism. We are talking about uh, two of the most important blocks of uh, the entire globe. So uh, I think we are uh, talking about almost 800 people. Uh, 800 million, sorry, people uh, that accounts for the the two the two blocks together. So I think we are talking about something that it's more related to 
a signal to the markets to what's the strategy of the EU to advance in trade agreements with other countries for uh, Mercosur particularly I think that uh, we this is the first uh, huge agreement that Mercosur is uh, going forward and it's also a clear signal towards uh, rules-based trade and it could benefit in terms of institutional uh, I think it could strengthen institutions in Mercosur because uh, as I mentioned before there are many things that are being done or there are uh, misunderstanding about some of what we are doing and how we produce and this is a way to show how we are producing in a sustainable manner no, no matter how much is one specific tariff rate quota or other concessions regarding market access it's not only market access of course it's important and it was one of the main issues that one were wanted to solve but uh, I think it's like uh, we have to see the big picture for both sides and as uh, David says uh, Europe it could enter into force uh, with the approval of the Parliament and Council uh, and well then we have we will have further discussions I, I don't have a, a like I don't know what's going to happen, but uh, well, we have to wait a little bit. I don't know what's going to happen also in Argentina, uh, uh, because we have uh, we have seen that many of the Mercosur partners mentioned that wanted to ratify it, and well, in Argentina it's quite different. Uh, but even it's too soon to know, uh, I think it's going to be hard to renegotiate. It's highly unlikely that to happen because you need the consensus of many, uh, many countries that are part of the agreement and it took more than 20 years to reach consensus so I'm not that sure that uh, this could, uh, this at least would be rather difficult. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's a key, big question, Rob. Uh, we ran in 2000, 2001, I, I guess, with Shen Yao and Sherman Robinson, some simulations on the impact of a Mercosur-European uh, Union agreement that was published in the Economia Applique. Uh, of course, the big difference is the assumptions about uh, the productivity increases. Uh, do you think that this new trade regime will lead to greater productivity and and and, and depending on the level of productivity that you will bring, then the, the results are, are very different. And in my view, I probably put more emphasis now on the cooperation side of the general, because it's not only trade, you have cooperation and you have the political aspects. To discuss with the European Union, the possibility of getting integrated in high value and technological advanced value chains and all the support and the interaction in science and technology with Europe. That would make a big, big difference. And I think it's the only way also, as I mentioned before, to reconcile the fact that food security, the Latin America is very important, Mercosur very important for food security, being the main net food exporter, but also the main provider of uh, environmental public goods. So that's com way beyond trade issues. And, and I think a, a strong cooperation, financial, and also to help mobilize not only public money from Europe, and in the Mercosur countries, but try to mobilize private sector money, environmental 
eh, oriented eh, green bonds, etc., and work together with the European Union to mobilize those investments to make sure that you can make compatible the uh, food production and environmental sustainability, not only in the agricultural sector, across the whole food system. We know that we are not going to get to the SDGs 2030 if the food system is not um, uh, reorganized or improved in a way that you know you, we really are producing sustainably healthy uh, diets. Thank you, everyone. Does anybody else have a question here in the room? Yes. Yes. In the meantime, uh, Jos Winnen from IFPRI. Um, I had a similar question as Rob, actually, but since <laughs> you've already answered that. The, uh, the question I was uh, thinking about is, because it's going to be very, very sensitive, okay, the environmental aspects, and it really will play a big role in, in Europe in the decision-making, particularly if it has to go to the national parliaments as well. The, uh, how much can technology like digital technology, et cetera, help in the enforcement or basically the identification of the sustainability effects for the future? Hi. Um, I was wondering what uh, exactly was going on or happening at the time when they created the EU MIT, I don't know how to say it, <laughs> miss your agreement, uh, like what kind of caused it to become, you know, something that people wanted to create. Hi, Julie Kurtz from IFRI. Uh, I, I sort of had two questions. One that was much like yours was basically, but generally, like how how is the 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 environmental sustainability, you know, that you talk about, to show that we can produce environment sustainability uh, sustainably? How is that actually being measured and communicated across the two um, trading partners or <laughs> groups? And then uh, second, I was wondering uh, some of the the. Um, the primary exports that you were mentioning about beef, pork, chicken, sugar, uh, and just thinking about some of the externalities that are tied to the, the, these are products that have higher externalities. And so wondering if, if one is taking um, a really strong climate perspective, how do you make an argument for exporting more beef, especially from my understanding, Mercosur countries have a much higher CO2 impact in animal production than Europe, sometimes tenfold. So how can you make an argument for greener policies when the production externalities from a carbon perspective are much higher there? Thank you. Um, the next one. Eugenio, do you want to start with the uh, 1995 uh, Mercosur-EU uh, agreement? What was going on then? Yeah, at, at the European Union and Mercosur, they are a custom union. So there was also this idea that um, Mercosur wanted to be like the European Union in terms of a full integration, uh, being a custom union, but also political integration. You have a, a 
parliament that it's for Mercosur as a whole, like you have the European Parliament and so on. So there was this idea that they were like sister or brother uh, uh, political and not only trade agreements, but political agreements. And therefore it was important for these two blocks that were sort of parallel in their, in their certainly the European Union's their uh, realization and the Mercosur in their ambitions, it was important to get together. Still, as was mentioned, the agricultural sector was a key difference and the industrial aspects in, in Mercosur. Thank you, Eugenio. And David, do you want to take the question about the beef that you are already mentioned some earlier? Yes, yes. I, I, I can start. Uh, and just maybe one one remark about the digitalization and the new technology. I think in terms of tra traceability, blockchain have started to change things, the private sector start to be. So we can uh, actually have a better information system nowadays than in the past. But also monitoring things like deforestation uh, and starting to track with remote sensing what is happening in specific fields, specific parcel, help to get better enforcement of the law. And this way also some trade agreements play actually a role. Um, in the past, there was an agreement between an OECD countries and a country from Latin America. And when they started to discuss sustainability, the country in Latin America say, what do you want in the agreement? And the country in the Northern Hemisphere say, just enforce the law you have in terms of forestry. And I think a lot of the issue we see, not only in Mercosur countries, but you know, in some time you have laws, People have laws, but there is either a lack of political power to enforce it or a lack of technical capacity to monitor what is happening in this field. The technology are going to help this enforcement on one side, the traceability, but we will need also the political will to make it happen. And we know that the cycle of deforestation in Brazil follows the um, electoral cycle too. So that, that's an issue to, to deal with. But I think that's really important. Technology in some case can help but political will will be needed. But what we have seen in the past is, for some policymaker having this external anchorage, is it WTO, is it an international convention, is it a bilateral trade agreement, they use it as a reason, say, okay, no, we need to apply the law, we don't have the choice. And even European countries are doing it every day. Or oh, Brussels has decided to do that, so we need to do this in France. French policymaker doesn't want to take the blame for it, they blame Brussels even if they want to do it, and we will see it in any level of governance. So this trade policy can also have this encourage effect to really steer domestic policy in the right direction. Now, about the, the question on, on the meat uh, and other product. Um, first, yes, some Mercosur product ca can be carbon intensive, but when we export cars from Europe to uh, Latin America, cars actually making a car are also a carbon footprint. So. Once again, let's not blame agriculture for all the, the emission is going to be uh, on both sides. Now, um, I mean that if you look about what has happened in the sugar sector in Brazil, there is a lot of efforts to make it much more sustainable, to make sure that it's not lead to more deforestation. I think in the cattle industry, different places within Mercosur at also different states of progress. Um, so you have some low, low carbon intensive producers even today in Latin America, and you have very high carbon uh, emitter, both by, by having very inefficient cows. So basically, they don't produce a lot of meat during their life cycle. And also, they do it by doing deforestation and burning. So where you do it, how you do it, and as I said before, the quality also of the product lead to different carbon intensity. So we have some products that are carbon 
intensive in average. Doesn't mean that all the producers are going to be carbon intensive. And the best way we can do is to steer people in the right direction to reduce it. But fundamentally, in the agreement, um, the bringing a piece of meat from Argentina or a piece of meat from Australia, and that's what we are going to discuss in agreement, basically give more access to Argentinian meat than to Australian meat. Overall, the carbon balance will be more or less the same, okay? So it's not going to increase the amount of meat that Europeans consumers are going to have. It's not going to increase the amount of sugar that your consumers are going to consume. It's more where it comes from, and therefore how it's going to be produced. Latin America has a number of inefficient producers, we have to admit it, uh, in different places, and it has to be improved. Uh, and the agreement can, can help on this. And in Europe, you also have good and bad producers. I think it's how we can create this partnership, adopting the better technology, and making sure that consumer and both final consumer and intermediate consumer know what they consume with this traceability, with this labeling in some case, can help addressing the, these challenges. Thank you, David. Okay. Um, Lu Lucy, do we have some questions uh, online? Yes, we do. Um, we have three here. The first one is Chris Gray from the Foundation for a Smoke-Free World from the U.S. The agreement faces backlash in the EU, EU from countries like Ireland and Belgium as the terms hurt EU farmers. How can ratification proceed without revolt? The second one is Nigel Poole from SOAS University London. Can you please comment on the opportunities and threats for the Mercosur that may arise from Brexit? And the third one is Nadia Monge from the Inter-American Institute for Cooperation on Agriculture, Costa Rica. Is there any methodology to measure, estimate, or foresee the impact of the agreement and actual policies in the four areas of food security from the FAO concept? Thanks. Thank you. Sophia? Uh, the question about Brexit and the relation with the, the agreement, actually the, the negotiations for Brexit were ongoing when the Mercosur-EU uh, agreement was ongoing, so what the negotiations were ongoing, both. So UK wasn't part of the agreement at that time. Actually, the, the amounts of the tariffs, tariff rate quotas, uh, wasn't defined uh, taking into account the UK. So I think uh, that's it. So uh, hopefully we will not get a, a revolt on a trade agreements, but at least we have seen opposition. So what has happened up to now? It's not like if the agreement has been finalized from a legal point of view and the parliament has decided not to ratify it. What has happened in Austria is basically the parliament has said to the government, say no when you will be at the European Council in front of, of this agreement. That's still not clear, the, the, the European Council, so it's where the head of member states start to uh, accept or not the agreement. So it's not like if, you know, we are in a critical situation where everyone has ratified and one country says, I don't ratify, what do we do? So we will still have scrubbing of the text, maybe some small adjustment, political economy is going to play, people are going to find compromise. So I think the European process will take 
all the 2020 year in order to get a text that then will be ratified by the parliament and then we are going to do it and in the past we have seen the case with the canada eu agreement where one province one regional government from belgium i say no to the agreement we still have enforced it and then we solve the problem after um, so that's where it's going to uh to to enroll now if we don't want to at revolt yes we need to have a clear communication strategy on one hand and as usual there's winners and losers uh, that will need some aid package so it's where also all the common agricultural policy will have to take care of some of the uh, of the hotspot and, and, and the producers um, and also that the agreement can deliver on some of these environmental issues uh, that are important for the different constituencies so that's for the the, the process part for the the brexit part Sophia has already answered it, um, and I think that then the UK will decide what will be their trade policy with, with Mercosur, and it depends also what will be the trade policy of the UK with the rest of the world, because if they become very open with everyone, they may not need to sign a specific agreement with, with Mercosur. On the assessment of the trade agreement on the four dimension of food security, uh, but it's a lot of what we do at IFPRI actually, and other centers uh, all around the world are doing it. We use basically what we call simulation model. It can be the partial equilibrium model or general equilibrium model, trying to see in the future, because this agreement are going to be implemented over five years, 10 years, 15 years. So really there's a dynamic aspect in a world that is changing also. And this where the question of how much technology is going to change in this time. And then you see what it means in terms of prices of goods, of consumer habits, you can include um, household level analysis to understand also this redistribution between different type of household, different type of consumer, different type of producers. So clearly that's a big part of what actually is also asked uh, ask us economists to do when policymakers say, okay, we are going to sign this agreement. There's a lot of impact study during the negotiation before and in the case of the EU, even after the implementation of the agreement, the European Commission tried to track and assess what were the impact of an agreement on the three dimensions of sustainable development, social impact, economic impact, and environmental impact? Eugenio? Yeah. A couple of comments. One on digitalization that Johan mentioned. I think uh, besides the uh, tracking and monitoring aspect, of course, it's very important for precision agriculture. Precision agriculture is expanding in, in at the world level, but in, in the southern corn. So you have the sensors and the drones and everything that are, will allow you to be far more um, efficient in their production and, and you can track the greenhouse emissions also. So I think the digitalization will be crucial as part of this big push for science and technology that I think we, we will need. The, the second uh, Brexit, uh, if you take, I was doing the calculation going back to beef, which seems to be the main issue here, um, the quota, the 99,000 uh, tons of additional beef, it's about 1.2 of production in the European Union. If you take the uh, uh, UK, it's about 1.4. So it doesn't seem to be, you know, such a big difference. On, but on the other hand, I think that will open the possibility of Mercosur and uh, agreement with, with the UK that will now not be constrained by the common agricultural policy. Perhaps the European, uh, the UK may be more um, amenable of living, uh, giving more market access. Then the question from um, Costa Rica, there's a food security, whether and therefore, you know, it, whether it changed 
uh, the four dimensions of food security, access, availability, uh, sorry, availability, access, utilization, and stability. Of course, this is, I don't think will change much at the global level. It's still Lat uh, the, the Mercosur and South Latin America in general is a key factor in stabilizing quantities and prices at the world level. And again, I keep on going back to my um, uh, argument that we need a strong uh, effort of science and technology to make sure that Latin America continues to be uh, an anchor and Mercosur an anchor of food security at the global level and at the same time providing the global environmental public goods that now the region is producing. Thank you, Eugenio. And can we have the mic here for uh, Will Martin, please? Thank you. Thank you. This is, a, um, you know, from a trade um, point of view, a very exciting development, much different from the ones we've seen lately. Um, the trade negotiations that start off with a threat <coughs> of a tariff and turn into retaliation. Um, my question here, um, this one looks like it could generate but could be a building block towards further uh, reform. David mentioned, uh, you know, increased competition from uh, Latin America for Australia, uh, increased competition presumably for US agricultural exporters and Thai agricultural exporters, for example. And I'm just wondering, have you thought about the sort of the building blocks, what this leads to um, in terms of potential subsequent negotiations oriented towards lowering rather than raising barriers. Um, any more questions in the room? Okay. Two. So this question of domino effect among agreements, because yes, as soon as, um, and if it is a success, meaning that the EU agreement we were still not finished, EU Mercosur not finished to sign it, but if it is implemented, if Mercosur exporters see that also they get what they have signed for, because I think that you will have to deliver as the same thing, other exporters, in particular, yes, Thailand, can say, okay, we also have chicken, and right now we have difficulty to export it to the Europe, so we also want to have a TRQ on chicken. Um, and so it can help, uh, and Europe actually have been very good in the past to try to give a concession to one country, give a concession to another country, give a concession to a third country. So actually at the end, there is the concession for no one, but Europe has managed to get a number of things. So, And other countries are, are, are doing it. Um, but what is good, and I think that it will be a next round of discussion, is also now basically Europe will have trade agreement with more or less all countries in Latin America. So will come the question about what type of accumulation when rules of origin, in terms of integration of value chain will take place. So on one hand, yes, Europe can, and other countries can be interested to have this domino effect and signing new agreement to get also this good condition to access to the European market or to the Mercosur markets. Uh, but also we may see more consolidation or more harmonization within Mercosur, within Latin America, to try to ask for uh, better accumulation of these rules of origin. So rules of origin mean that, you know, if you start to export butter from Brazil, but you have bring your, um, your milk from Uruguay because you have an EU Mercosur agreement, that will be okay. But if you bring, uh, let's say uh, you are in the northern part and if you bring your, uh, your um, milk from Guyana, uh, you cannot be eligible anymore for the preference. So all this agreement, when you start to have a lot of agreements, 
that start to be a bit complicated, so you want to consolidate them. Of course, the best way to consolidate them is to have a WTO agreements where everyone is this. So I think also something that can be good is that because the agricultural negotiation between Mercosur and Europe were so sensitive that actually they were overlapping a lot with also the WTO agenda. And that the agreement itself say, now we need to cooperate more about how we do with subsidies reform at the WTO, how we do a lot of things. We can start to see joint proposal, maybe, I may be too optimistic, but joint proposal coming from Mercosur and Europe in terms of moving the WTO agenda in a direction that will benefit all, and that can be another pro-trade uh, pro effect overall. Just a quick add to what uh, David mentioned. Actually, uh, the EU had a strong uh, position over negotiation of trade agreements, had many trade agreements in ongoing, and the rest are uh, in force, actually. Uh, I think Mercosur hasn't got that uh, specific exercise of uh, having that much uh, trade agreements, and this was like one of the uh, initial or the first step into that uh, path. So um, I actually think that this would be helpful, helpful also for the WTO negotiations, uh, having uh, extract uh, some rules uh, between both of the most important blocks uh, of the world. I think it would be it would help. Uh, to further discussions on WTO negotiations because if not, it would happen with US uh, and China with the agreement and the rules are going to be defined only by some of the, uh, of the countries and the idea is to have uh, the best conditions we can and have the rules the most fair as we can. And uh, I think in some way, this could help also to further discussions on WTO uh, organization. Thank you. Um, yes, Lucy. Okay, we have um, another online question here from Carl Heinz Nickel at Sustainability Strategies and Innovation, Luca, Italy. Agricultural trade can contribute to achieving the SDGs if governed appropriately. Currently, trade frequently does not meet this expectation. Deforestation in the Amazonas for the production of soya export is an, export is an example. How can such unintended impacts be avoided and what kind of governance arrangements are needed in trade agreements like EU-Mercosur? Thanks. Um, do Yep, I think that it would be perfect. Some point you can tell us about what happened in Chaco and, and the initiative you have there. Just not, not answering about uh, the Amazonas, I'm sorry for that, but uh, coming back to the, the deforestation, the no deforestation idea or program that we have in Argentina, I could mention that under this program, the, the Agroideal platform that I was telling before, uh, NGOs, environmental NGOs are tracking deforestation in this important region. Remember that this is the second largest forest mass in, in, in America Latina, in Latin America. And after analyzing the deforestation in 10 years, in the last 10 years, they found that only 0.11% of the production 
uh, I mean, I, I'm going to rephrase myself, sorry about that. When you analyze the, the, the soybean production that came from prohibited zones, it's only the 0.11% of the prohibited, prohibited area they are in the Ranchaco region. So the problem is, is not, at least we can say, not that important, in, in, at least in our country, in this important forest, but no matter what, we just keep working on that to reach zero deforestation. And we have a forest law in Argentina, and this initiative, this is a private initiative, are working to enforce that law to be even more 100% uh, sure that we are buying or producing soybeans in, the, in, in areas that we can do that. Uh, regarding the, the Amazon and Brazil, uh, it's one of the main concerns of uh, EU and other countries, maybe. Uh, the EU-Mercosur agreement, as I mentioned before, would serve as a platform for the implementation of international agreements, such as Paris Agreement. And uh, let's remember that Brazil had, uh, or, or its commitments are related to restore, I think, 12 million hectares. So I think if the EU-Mercosur agreement helped to enforce some of international uh, agreements, it would be really helpful for the environment. Right? Thank you. Eugenio, um, we finish yes. with this. Uh, I, I, I think uh, if the, I think the new president of the IDB, they, they, he or she should call uh, at the countries in, Latin, in the region, particularly all the Amazon countries, which I mentioned is not only Brazil, it's Colombia, Venezuela, Ecuador, et cetera, et cetera, to have a huge collective action program uh, to make uh, you work also with the World Bank, CAF, Fon Plata, with FAO, IICA, to have a strong science and technology based effort. And the European Union, by the way, is part of the IDB, or they are member countries within the IDB. So you call for this huge collective action program based on science and technology, which, in my view, is the only way to solve it because it's it, it not going to be monitoring and control and um, police type of. Uh, Things because there will still be people there trying to get, you know, poor people working in the Amazon, cutting forests and so on and so forth, or medium ranchers or whatever. So you need to have a strong science and technology program, collective action program for the region to do this and help mobilize the enormous amount of trillions of dollars without very little uh, return that they may, and these funds may have some environmental interest, you know, last year there were about two bi two, $200 billion in green bonds, but very little went to, uh, to agriculture. So can we mobilize through science and technology and collective action all these funds to make sure that the region still is the main, is a linchpin for food security and at the same time the main provider of global environmental public goods? I think that's the question that we in Latin America need to answer. Perfect. Well, with this, I would like to uh, finish this uh, seminar. I would like to thank one more time all of you. You were superb. I think that uh, it was a very productive uh, discussion. And again, reinforce the uh, thank you for uh, INAI and uh, Bolsa de Cereales for being always uh, big partners with, uh, uh, with us, with IFPRI. We've done this many, many, many years in a row. So thank you, thank you again for this. And thank you all for uh, being here. Um, so 